Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 30th. And our first article, Closed Primaries Shut Out Millions, Voting in America. Two poll workers unintentionally rattled David Bolkin two decades ago when he walked into a petite country church near Tulsa to vote for his first time as an Oklahoman. They wouldn't offer him a ballot, only a cup of coffee. The ballot got flipped upside down on me. I wasn't even allowed to look at it, Bolkin said, noting that the two apologetic poll workers, his friends, were just doing their jobs. That kind of made me feel bad. Bolkin grew up in Minnesota, a state with open primaries, where all registered voters may participate in any party's primary election. He didn't realize his status as a registered independent in Oklahoma would exclude him from partisan primaries. Iowans who are not registered to vote or are registered with another political party may still participate in caucuses or primary elections if they register or change their party affiliation on the day of an election at their precinct location. Millions of voters in states like Oklahoma with primaries that are at least partially closed are shut out from voting in contested races because of their independent status or party affiliation, denying participation in elections their tax dollars fund. In some cases, those primaries decide who wins the seat outright. Across nine closed or partially closed primary states, about two in five registered voters in districts with contested U.S. congressional primary elections in the 2022 midterms were barred from casting ballots in those races, according to a Lee Enterprises public service journalism team analysis of publicly available data. Similarly, about two in five registered voters throughout those nine states in districts with contested state legislative primaries in 2022 were prohibited from participation. In 181 of those 590 contested federal and state primaries, Disallowed voters were entirely blocked from a choice in who represents them because the primaries decided who won the office, either directly or with an uncontested general election, according to Lee Enterprises' analysis. That's almost one in three districts where the excluded voters had no say in their representation. Jeremy Gruber, a lawyer and senior vice president of Open Primaries, a national advocacy group, frames the issue in stark terms. There's a country where when you vote in the general election, half the time there's only one person on the ballot. Almost every time it's an uncompetitive election and half the voters in the country are barred from the first round or limited, Gruber said, and even the voters that can participate are segregated into warring camps. People would say, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound democratic. Where is that? What strange country has that system? But that's us, that's our system. Gruber is part of a burgeoning movement across the U.S. to open up primaries so all registered voters can participate. As the 2024 election season begins, there are already about a dozen active campaigns in states across the U.S., including Oklahoma, Arizona, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and Idaho. Proponents who are pushing for changes through citizen-led ballot initiatives, state law changes, or even lawsuits say open primaries strengthen American democracy by allowing all registered voters equal access to taxpayer-funded elections while broadening voter choice and improving outcomes through competition. 
but open primary efforts are running up against opposition from some political party leaders and partisans who think only party members should choose their candidates for the general election. In the 20 years since Bolkin first tried to vote in Oklahoma, the state's Democratic Party has opened its primaries to independent voters, but neither Republicans nor Libertarians have followed suit. State Senator Nathan Dom, chair of the Oklahoma GOP, said he adamantly opposes open primaries because political parties are private organizations with specific ideals that should be able to decide who participates in their affairs, primary elections included. You don't want the out-of-town atheist coming in and voting on who your next pastor should be in your church, Dom said. The high level of voter disenfranchisement that Lee Enterprises' analysis found found in states such as Oklahoma was surprising even to a researcher who studies open primaries. That's nuts, said John Johnson, a research fellow at Marquette University in Wisconsin, a state with open primaries. Johnson said he would be angry if he lived in a state in which he couldn't participate in the primary, particularly if the general election wasn't competitive. In stark contrast, Wisconsin's open primary system doesn't require voters to register with a party and allows them to decide in which party's primary they want to vote. It's mostly people just voting with the party that they prefer, and then when they cross over, it's because they genuinely feel some stake in the contest that's happening inside the other party, Johnson said. Johnson's research has found that crossover voting, when Republicans vote in a Democratic primary, for example, happens at such low levels as to be inconsequential in swaying the results despite fears of party rating expressed by opponents of open primaries. In analyzing both the 2016 and 2018 Wisconsin primaries, an identical share of Republicans and Democrats, 2%, crossed over to the opposite party. Even if this tiny share of people were indeed party rating, they canceled each other out, Johnson wrote in a summary of the study, but there is no good evidence suggesting they weren't voting in good faith. Still, high-profile stories of voters trying to disrupt primary elections pop up. For example, some Democratic and independent voters in Wyoming crossed over to the Republican primary in 2022 to try to save former U.S. Representative Liz Cheney from her GOP challenger. They were unsuccessful as Cheney lost by more than 30 percentage points. Johnson thinks the academic literature is pretty settled in that open primaries don't cause harm, but they do increase voter turnout. The Bipartisan Policy Center examined the 2022 midterm primaries and found that open primary states had higher voter turnout on average than closed primary states. The average turnout was 24.5% in states with fully open primaries, or what are referred to as top two or top four formats, according to Bipartisan Policy Center's analysis. Meanwhile, average turnout was just 21.5% in states with semi-open primaries and 20.7% in states with closed primaries. Fully open primaries allow individuals to decide in which which party's primary they want to vote. Top two or top four formats place all candidates on a common ballot for all voters, with the top vote-getters advancing to the general election. Generally, partially open primaries permit independent or unaffiliated voters to choose a party's primary, but don't allow party members to switch to another party's primary. Closed primaries only authorize party members to vote, and only within their designated party. And partially closed primaries let the recognized parties decide whether 
any independent or unaffiliated or minor, <clears throat> excuse me, or minor party voters can participate. Primary systems can be nuanced and vary widely by state. For example, Nevada and New Mexico technically closed primary states allow any person to register to vote or switch parties at the polls on primary day. Other state deadlines for switching parties are weeks or months in advance of primary elections. The Lee Enterprise's analysis of publicly available voter data for the 2022 midterm primary illustrates how Oklahoma's partially closed system, and others like it, stifles voter participation. In districts with contested U.S. House races, about 49% of registered voters, or 889,880 eligible Oklahomans were shut out from casting a ballot in them. Similarly, about 45% of registered voters, or 350,669 eligible Oklahomans, in contested state House races, and about 40%, or 252,197, in contested state Senate races were blocked from voting in them. And 31 of those 52 contested state and federal seats about 60% were decided outright by the primary and not the general election, meaning hundreds of thousands of registered voters who were disallowed a primary voice had no vote at all for who would represent them in public office. Bynum called that data one of the great arguments in favor of open primaries. From a democracy standpoint, he said, it's much better to have elected leaders chosen by all of the people, not half of half the people in many cases. While momentum to open up primaries is building among the country's independent voters, some states, including Missouri, Tennessee, and Ohio, are facing action in the other direction, forcing advocates to play defense. In Missouri, voting rights advocates like Denise Lieberman of the Missouri Voter Protection Coalition so far have successfully staved off Republican efforts to close the state's open primaries, but the threat is constantly looming, she said. Major changes to the state's voting system already have taken place, such as the 2022 elimination of the Republican presidential primary election in favor of a caucus system, which tends to encourage participation by loyal party members and decrease turnout overall. This is all part of the national trend to constrict who is able to cast a ballot, Lieberman said. I do think these efforts to close primaries that we've seen in about a half a dozen states are part of this effort to make the electorate smaller. Lieberman said a consequence of shutting out voters from primaries is making them feel like it was rigged from the beginning. What we know from the data is that fewer and fewer people are choosing to affiliate with the major political parties, Lieberman said. If you have no say in who the party candidate is going to be, why even bother to show up at the general election to vote? In fact, the Missouri Republican Party states on its party platform that it believes in closed primaries requiring all voters who cast a ballot to declare a partisan affiliation and maintain declared party affiliations as a public record. Political parties are in fact private organizations, Evans said. They ought to have the right to have freedom of association like any other group. Our next uh, page one story, a snapshot of region's homeless population. Volunteers use a point-in-time census to measure. This is by an article by Robin McClellan. Each January and July, local service agencies and volunteers make their way out into the area to take a point-in-time census of people experiencing homelessness. In North Iowa, census nights are coordinated by Friends of the Family, a housing and advocacy agency. In conjunction with law enforcement, public health officials and other agency staff 
volunteers set out in the evening and spend hours traversing streets, parks, and parking lots in search of people who may be living unsheltered or at serious risk for homelessness. The census is done at the end of the month. Residents who rely on limited sources of income, such as Social Security, disability, or other monthly disbursements, and do not have permanent housing, may find themselves unsheltered by the end of the month. Volunteers are out from early evening into the early morning hours. On Wednesday, 53 staff, volunteers, and community partners headed out in 20 counties, including the cities of Waterloo, Waverly, and Mason City, to locate people and determine their housing status, if possible. In the Cedar Valley, 25 people experiencing homelessness were located. Volunteers from Community Housing Initiative, Hospitality House, and Black Hawk Grundy Mental Health Center conducted the census. Workers with Hospitality House walked around Waterloo and Cedar Falls looking for those without a home from 7.30 to 11.30 p.m. to get a snapshot of the homeless population and provide them with information and resources. In Waterloo alone, they encountered 17 people living outside, along with eight who were already inside the warming shelter. Joni Hansen, executive director of Hospitality House, did not have the numbers for those in Cedar Falls available. She said that up she said that's up 50% from last year. In total, 24 people experiencing homelessness were contacted and offered services and shelter in North Central and Northeast Iowa. The National Alliance to End Homelessness reports that in 2022, 2,419 Iowans, or 7.6 per 10,000 Iowa residents, were experiencing homelessness. There's no way to tell someone's housing status just by looking at them, said Caitlin Kupka, Service Access Manager for FOF. There are two types of homelessness, sheltered and unsheltered. Unsheltered means they live in a place that is not designed for human habitation, like a park, a vehicle, or an abandoned building. Our focus is to meet everyone, but especially to get anyone unsheltered into shelter if they want it. The Alliance's State of Homelessness, 2023 edition, is based on twice-yearly point-in-time censuses. Done in July and January, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Census is required if communities and agencies wish to access funding for programs that address homelessness. Kupka said that, especially in Mason City, Many people experiencing homelessness have high barriers to shelter access, including mental health issues, drug abuse, or a combination of the two. Nicole Jacobs serves as an outreach and diversion specialist and spends plenty of time getting to know her clients. Jacobs spends one night each month on outreach assignments, bringing needed items, and checking on anyone experiencing homelessness or at a risk for it. The point-in-time census is an extension of the regular outreach I do, Jacob said. The census is how we make reports to our funders about the needs in the community. The January 24th census was conducted between 6 p.m. and midnight. Divided up two or three census takers to a car, they set out to locations where unhoused people have been contacted in the past. In total, 24 people were contacted who were currently experiencing homelessness and many others were offered resources specific to their region. Of the 24 people identified, 19 were in Saragoro County, three in Bremer, and one each in Franklin, Howard, and Alamakee counties. In Mason City, Jacobs met a man named Mike riding his bicycle and pulling a trailer down the street. Mike is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, making him eligible for immediate shelter and a host of programs through the Veterans Administration. 
Northern Lights Alliance of Homeless Shelters, is ready to receive people who want to take the necessary steps to gain housing in Mason City. During the cold winter months, NLAHS is a low-barrier shelter, but year-round, staff and volunteers are eager to work with people making positive changes. Jesse Germanson, NLAHS Executive Director, spoke briefly to the census takers during the pre-shift kickoff. We have beds available. We're ready and willing to take on anyone who wants shelter tonight. Even if they say they've been to NLAHS and can't come back, bring them by. Sometimes people misunderstand the rules and think they aren't eligible for services. The PIT census is a snapshot in time. It is not a complete count of those experiencing or at risk for homelessness, but it does give an indication to program directors about the needs in the area. In the January 2023 census, 30 individuals in need of housing were identified. According to the Alliance to End Homelessness, the nation's progress on veteran homelessness has been particularly robust. The size of the group was cut in half over a decade-long period, 2010 to 2020, decreasing by 50%. Similar attention and resources could be extended to other subgroups in an effort to attain similar success. CFNEIA, Seeking Scholarship Applications, out of Cedar Falls. The Community Foundation of Northeast Iowa's 2024 scholarship application process is open, and students may apply for scholarships available through CFNEIA at www.cfneia.org scholarships. The deadline to apply for 2024 scholarships is 8 p.m. March 6th. CFNEIA awarded more than $730,000 in scholarships to high school, college, and adult students in 2023. A total of 268 scholarships were awarded to students pursuing higher education opportunities, and the average amount awarded exceeded $3,000. Students interested in applying for 2024 scholarships should visit the CFNEIA website to view the scholarship eligibility checklist. Once scholarship eligibility is determined, a common application, also available through the CFNEIA website, must be completed. The common application requires basic student information, transcript of academic record, summary of extracurricular experiences, an essay portion, and a letter of recommendation. Some scholarships will require additional information. All required materials must be submitted through the online system. Students must visit the Community Foundation's website for instructions and to begin the application process. A Frequently Asked Questions webpage is available to answer commonly asked questions any students may have. Scholarships are awarded based on various factors including, but not limited to, financial need, academic excellence, the pursuit of certain fields or majors, past experiences, location, or high school attended. For more information about scholarship opportunities, please contact Dottie Thompson, Grant and Scholarship Manager at the Community Foundation of Northeast Iowa at 319-243-1358 or dtthompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at cfneia.org. Illinois man found guilty of meth cocaine charges by Jeff Reinitz. Out of Waterloo, a federal judge has convicted an Illinois man who was a source of meth and cocaine sent to Waterloo and Davenport. 
Jurors deliberated for about one and a half hours Thursday before finding 37-year-old Antonio Rayshon Evans of Stone Park, Illinois, guilty of conspiracy to distribute a controlled substance, possession with intent to distribute controlled substances, carrying a firearm during and in relation to a drug trafficking crime, and possession of a firearm by a felon. During trial in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids, prosecutors said in the summer of 2021 and continuing to March of 2023, Evans distributed more than 70 pounds of methamphetamine and significant amounts of cocaine and crack cocaine. On April 2, 2023, Evans distributed four pounds of meth, and on April 11, 2023, he distributed four ounces of cocaine. On April 18, 2023, law enforcement officers stopped Evans' black, excuse me, his Buick Enclave and arrested him. A closer inspection of Evans' vehicle revealed a hidden compartment in the dash of the vehicle. It contained a 9mm Kenick pistol, more than 26 grams of crack, and more than 12 grams of fentanyl. Evans's DNA was found on the gun, according to court records. Sentencing will be at a later date. Evans faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years behind bars, a possible life sentence, and a $44.5 million fine. Teen leads police on 100-mile-per-hour chase. This is also by Jeff Reinitz out of Waterloo. An Illinois teen has been arrested after he allegedly stole a minivan in Waterloo and later led police on a high-speed chase that ended when he crashed. A resident in the 400 block of Rickers Street called police around 9.30 p.m. Sunday to report his Toyota Sienna had been stolen, apparently while it was left running. Hours later, officers spotted the vehicle leaving the Legacy nightclub on Sumner Street around 10.25 p.m. and heading into oncoming traffic, according to police reports. Authorities attempted to stop the Sienna, but the vehicle continued on, heading up East 4th Street and then turning onto Donald Street, reaching speeds of up to 110 miles per hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. The driver eventually lost control and the vehicle rolled several times on Donald Street. Officers arrested Martavian Marzan McDowell, 18, of Crest Hill, Illinois, for eluding and second-degree theft. Bond was set at $10,000. Officials believe the teen had planned to drive the stolen, the stolen minivan back to Illinois. Abandoned Home Damaged by Fire by Angela Stir McLaughlin out of Waterloo. Fire crews were called to a vacant home on Waterloo's east side Friday night. According to Ben Peterson, battalion chief with the Waterloo Fire Department, crews were dispatched at 5.38 p.m. to 415 East 8th Street. Fire damage was sustained to the back of the home with an active fire on the back porch. Crews quickly gained control of the fire and left the scene around 8.15 p.m. No one was living in the home. The owner of the home had been contacted. The building was essentially abandoned and no one was found at the scene. Fire department investigators believe someone was squatting on the premises and the investigation is ongoing. Our next article, A Place to Lay Their Heads, Warming Shelter Offers Safe Place for Those Without Homes by Maria Coop out of Waterloo. A roof over someone's head is a matter of life or death during sub-zero temperatures in Iowa winters. The year's first cold snap threatened the lives of many people who don't have shelter. As winter continues, the Hospitality House's new warming center for those experiencing homelessness is now open at 1022 West 5th Street. The former dentist office has two rooms for sleeping, 
15 beds for men and two for women in a separate room. Joni Hansen, the executive director of Hospitality House, said most homeless people are men. During the nights with a minus 40 degree wind chill, even more cots were put out into the building's community room to make space for anyone who needed a warm place to stay and sleep. The center has a total of 30 cots, as well as two showers, bathrooms, and washing machines. The organization also provides blankets and winter gear to those in need. The shelter will be used for warming from 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. from January 1st to March 31st. In April, the building will be used as a resource center. The organization received a $75,000 grant from the Black Hawk County Gaming Association in 2021. Hansen was required to match that amount, so she, along with Bill and Lisa Bradford, asked for donations. They ended up raising around $240,000. The community room is named after the Bradfords, and one wall is made up of bricks with donors. Gary Kroger, who is on the board of the warming shelter, said the project came to be because of the generosity of the community. He said that the Cedar Valley's help didn't stop at the construction of the building. The shelter had not received every required city inspection in order to open, but when the board learned the temperatures would be so slow, Hansen contacted Waterloo Mayor Quinton Hart. Kroger said they worked with the city to open for one of the most brutal weeks of winter. All of the changes that were necessary to make this finally open became a reality in a day, he said. The mayor recognized the urgency with the temperatures that we had, that we've got to get this facility open. Kroger said the Cedar Valley is not fully aware of how many homeless people live in the area. In this community, there's a tendency to think that we're a small town, that it's an invisible problem, he said. But Hansen said on January 24th, Hospitality House did a point-in-time count of the number of homeless people living in Waterloo and Cedar Falls. Workers with the organization walked around Waterloo and Cedar Falls looking for those without a home from 7.30 to 11.30 p.m. to get a snapshot of the homeless population and provide them with information and resources. She said in Waterloo alone, both the east and west side, they encountered 17 people living outside along with eight that were already inside the warming shelter. Hansen did not have the numbers for those living in Cedar Falls. Hansen said the idea of a warming shelter came to her after the polar vortex in 2019 and 2020. She said a few people died from the elements that winter. Hospitality House has provided a warming shelter since, but this is the first permanent location. It's a terribly sad thing to think that someone has to die alone in a situation like that, she said. They're a son or daughter, you know. They have parents. They have a life. Every year on the winter solstice, the organization holds a vigil for the people who have died who were either homeless at the time or have previously used Hospitality House's services. 2023, 14 names were read in Lincoln Park. Kroger, who read the name, started to tear up when, she and, when he and Hansen explained why the organization does this. Many of them don't ever have an actual funeral or they don't have family that does something, Hansen said. We kind of take that upon ourselves to try to be a family for them. Hospitality House is hosting another event to try and keep homelessness at the forefront of the community's mind. At 10 a.m. February 24th, the organization is holding a 5K titled Put the Homeless in Your Heart. There is a reason it's, in, it's happening in the middle of winter. It's an experience for people to actually come out and walk in the elements and think about while they're walking that, you know, this is what these people are going through, Hansen said. Those interested in the 5K can visit Hospitality House's Facebook page to register. Opinion section and read the letter. I believe there's just one today. Nope, there's two. Letters to the editor. Our first is good environmental news. At the start of the year, it is good 
to reflect on the past year. While there were many environmental challenges during 2023, there were also some successes. Most notably were the outcomes from the COP23 Climate Summit. For the first time, the countries called for a transition away from fossil fuels in order to meet the goal of limiting the global increase of temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. They also called on the oil and gas companies to cut methane leaks, a potent greenhouse gas, and several agreed. In other good news, according to the Citizen Climate Lobby, last year America's climate pollution fell by 2-3% and is now 18-19% to below 2005 levels. The European Union did even better, declining by about 6-7% to in 2023. Even China is deploying solar panels and wind turbines at a rate that should displace some fossil fuel consumption and reduce their carbon emissions. Those were also good news coming there was also good news coming from Congress. Several bills would combat climate change and the reauthorization of the farm bill addresses the long-term health of our soil, water and climate. Another bill is the Restoring America's Wildlife Act that aims to keep wildlife from becoming endangered. And that letter was from David Voits of Jessup. Our next letter, Common Sense. Where do I start with Fred Abraham's recent column? Democrats should tout Biden's accomplishments. What might those be, I might ask? Record inflation rates caused by the reckless spending of Biden and his minions? Millions of illegal aliens flooding our southern border with no end in sight? Or how about the firing of workers and the armed forces who refuse to get the job? Is he the guy that is trampling over the rights of our women athletes by allowing biological men to compete against women and taking their Title IX rights and stealing their scholarships? It wasn't Trump who controlled the lying and misinformation coming from social media regarding COVID and the Hunter Biden laptop. Regarding the state legislature, maybe Iowa citizens want school to be for learning and not social re-engineering. Maybe we want to say in the books that are approved, and if you don't like it, buy the book for your child or check it out of your library. Why does common sense make no sense to you? That was from Gary Fober of Cedar Falls. And our last letter, Hamas terrorists. Reference blood on their hands by Byron Plumley, the courier, January 24th. In his letter, Plumley accuses the Iowa Senate, whose resolution affirms the state of Iowa's support for the state of Israel, and condemning the Hamas attack on Israel of having blood of innocent children on their hands. In addition, he accuses Israel of waging a genocidal war in Gaza. Nothing can be further from the truth. As an American Jew, I know, as do many non-Jews, that Israel has never conducted genocide against Palestinians. Painting Israel as genocidal is a cheap smear against Jews and Israel. Indeed, the party that vows genocide is Hamas, as Charter, Article 7 states, Peace is not an option for Hamas, only violence. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. What do Hamas leaders say now? Ghazi Hamad on Lebanese television channel LBC stated, Israel has no place on our land. Asked whether this meant the complete annihilation of Israel, the answer was yes, of course. Plumlee falsely states Iowa's resolution supports Prime Minister Netanyahu's destruction of Gaza. It does not. It supports Israel's right to eliminate Hamas and any other affiliated terrorist groups. You are listening to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 30th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Eugene Christopher Jean Fischels 
that's F-I-S-C-H-E-L-S, 87, of LaPorte City, died Wednesday, January 24th, at Unity Point Allen Hospital. He was born January 9th, 1937, in Waterloo, the son of Peter J. and Rosella B. Huberty Fischels. Jean married Phyllis Ann Eastlick on September 22nd, 1958, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Waterloo. She preceded him in de- death on June 1st, 2007. Jean honorably served in the United States Army. He was employed with Youngblood's construction for 50 years and also farmed in the area. He's survived by two sons, Jeff Fischels of Kansas City, Kansas, and Chris Fischels of LaPorte City. Two daughters, Nancy Dudley of Elk Run Heights and Sherry Scarborough, Scarborough of Evansdale. Special friend, friend Gloria Abbey of LaPorte City. 15 grandchildren, 31 great-grandchildren, and a great-great-grandchild. Three sisters, Marge Minert of Gilbertville, Becky Becker of Jessup, and Rosie Beck of Waterloo. His brother, Pete Vichels Jr. of Waterloo. Services will be at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 31st at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church with burial at, in St. Mary's Cemetery, both in Gilbertville. Full military rites will be conducted by the Nugent DeMuth American Legion Post 714 and the Iowa Army Honor Guard. Public visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 30th at the church where there will be a 4 p.m. rosary. Visitation continuing one hour prior to the Mass Wednesday at the church. Haggerty Wakeoff Graurup Funeral Service on South Street is in charge of arrangements. Jack L. Cannon 65, of Maynard, died on Monday, January 22nd at Mercy One Olwine. Memorial service, 3 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd at Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home. The Reverend J. Weideman officiating. Visitation will be from 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd at Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home in Olwine. Thomas James Tom McLean, age 58, of Morrison, passed away in his home on January 24th. He was born in Waterloo on December 1, 1965, to Raymond James McLean and Sandra K. Moust McLean. He graduated from Waterloo West High School in 1984 and earned his B.A. in psychology at the University of Iowa in 1989. After college, he moved back to the Waterloo area and began working for BHCO's Country View. He married Kelly Russell on September 19, 1992, in the backyard of the Waterloo home they shared together. They remained married for over 31 years. Tom and Kelly purchased the Morris Inn Steakhouse on June 1, 1996. This became a large part of their lives for the next 27 and a half years. Tom was a special part of the community and was known for being someone who would help anyone with anything at any time. A visitation and gathering of friends will be held on Thursday, February 1st, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. at St. Gabriel's Catholic Church in Rhinebeck. Reading of the Word service will be held on Friday, February 2nd at 10.30 a.m. at St. Gabriel's Catholic Church in Rhinebeck, and a time for food and sharing in the church social hall will follow immediately after the service. Ronald Jones, surrounded by his loving family, Ronald Jones of Waterloo passed away Monday, January 22nd at Thusen Cottages, Western Home Communities in Cedar Falls. He was born on August 25, 1936, son of Charles and Elizabeth Stephan Jones. He graduated from Sacred Heart School. Ronald was very devoted to his faith. He served in the Army for five years as a cryptographer, worked at John Deere for 39 years in Tulandai, and retired in April 1995. 
Ronald was a loving husband to Marilyn LaPole Jones for 57 years, married on October 8, 1960. Dedicated father to Lori Saul of Waterloo, James Jones of Waterloo, Mark Jones of Bowling Green, Kentucky, Michael Jones of Tampa, Florida, Patrick Jones of Waterloo, and Jennifer Jones, deceased. His grandfather to Nicholas Saul, Nicole Saul, Jacob Jones, Alexander Jones, Joshua Jones, and Caitlin Jones. Great-grandfather to, oh, here it is, great-grandfather to Randy Coleman III, Colin, and Mia Soul. Preceded in death by his parents, his wife Marilyn, and daughter Jennifer, brothers Francis and Russell, sisters Rita and Mary Jones in infancy. Mass will be Friday, February 2nd at 10.30 a.m. at Sacred Heart Church, 627 West 4th in Waterloo. Visitation an hour prior to services at the church. Jeanine M. Dawson of Waterloo, 93, died Wednesday, January 24th at University Point Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. Services were at 11 a.m. Monday, January 29th at the Richardson Funeral Service. Interment will be at 11 a.m. Tuesday, January 30th at Garden of Memories in Waterloo. She's survived by her children, Karen Showalter, Richard Dawson, and Sue Dawson, all of Waterloo, five grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and sister Marilyn Oliver of Rockford, Illinois. Richardson Funeral Service is in charge of arrangements. Okay, I'm going to turn to the sports page. And our headline story is DeVries Powers Drake by Bourne Less UNI, College Men's Basketball. This is by Ethan Petrick. Out of Des Moines, Northern Iowa matched for 35 minutes, but the Bulldogs ran away in the final five minutes to earn a 77-63 win over the Panthers on Saturday. The Panthers, whose record is 12-9 and 6-4 and in the NBC, led for more time, 19 minutes 43 seconds, than the Bulldogs, whose record is 16-4 and 7-2 and in the NBC who they led for 16 minutes and 41 seconds. But UNI suffered a one-of-seven stretch over the final five minutes. During the same stretch, Drake went five-of-six from the field with three three-pointers, including two from Kyron Gibson, to seal the win with a 13-2 run. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson said rebounding was the key factor in the Bulldogs' end-of-game run. We needed to rebound the basketball better, Jacobson said, because then you have an opportunity to come in transition. We needed to try to get something before they got set because offense has, had gotten harder for us. That is the first thing that comes to mind is we needed to rebound the basketball. Offensively, there were two or three possessions where we had enough of a window. Landon Wolf was wide open on one of them. He had had a good game, and that was a shot we were working to get out of that if we did not get the drive. I will have to look at the other ones. UNI junior guard Bowen Bourne did not play on Saturday, remaining in Cedar Falls with a general illness, according to UNI. He wanted like crazy, of course, to be here, Jacobson said, but just talking with him, I told him this morning he is not coming, that he needed to stay back with the condition he is in. In Bourne's stead, UNI sophomore guard Trey Campbell shouldered the offensive load, leading UNI with 18 points in the loss. I knew my aggressiveness was going to be a key factor in this game, Campbell said. I did not really have anything set as to what I was going to do tonight, but I knew I was going to be aggressive and try and help my team win. A 6-0 run between the 18-minute 38-second and the 17-minute 32-second marks of the first half allowed UNI to jump out to a 6-2 lead as Campbell scored four points 
and Nate Heisey added a pair of free throws. Drake rallied, nodding the game at 6-6 and again at 9-9 before you and I managed to build a 5-point, 16-11 advantage at the second media timeout with 11 minutes, 34 seconds remaining in the half. Drake's Tucker DeVries, the reigning Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year, made quick work of the Panthers' lead, however. The forward drilled a three and converted three-point plays on back-to-back-to-back possessions to power a 9-2 Bulldogs run. A Darnell Brody layup and another DeVries triple made it a 15-2 surge and put the Bulldogs ahead 26-18 with 8 minutes 31 seconds to play. The Bulldogs' first half momentum peaked as DeVries connected on a three-pointer to answer a Landon Wolf tray on the other end. The bucket pushed his scoring total to 19 in the first half and extended the lead to 29-21. A Nate Ferguson free throw on the next possession gave Drake its largest lead of the half, a 9.30-21 margin. An 8-0 Panthers run ensued as Titan Anderson hit a trio of free throws and Trey Campbell hit a contested three over Brody. Drake managed to grow its lead back out to five with two minutes remaining in the first half. Trailing 36-31, you and I closed the half on a 7-0 run to take the lead, 38-36. True freshman guard R.J. Taylor capped the run in dramatic fashion, stripping DeVries of the ball in the waning moments of the half, sinking the fast-break layup, and drawing a foul, the third on Drake's Connor Enright. Taylor completed the three-point play to put you and I ahead 38-36 at the break. Riding the momentum of the half-ending rally, you and I opened the second half, on an 8-0 run to take a 10-point, 46-36 lead. Drake guard Atten Wright ended the Panthers' run at the free-throw line, and back-to-back and Wright triples made it an 8-0 Bulldog run, trimming the gap to 46-44. The teams traded blows for the next seven minutes of action until Drake surged back in front, 56-54, as Enright converted on a three-point play to cap a 7-0 run with eight minutes, 44 seconds to play. UNI scored seven of the game's next 10 points to assume a brief 61-60 lead before the Panthers' offense ground to a halt in the final five minutes of play. DeVries finished with a game-high 29 points while Enright added 14 and Brody managed 11. DeVries added seven rebounds and six assists. Wolf added 11 for UNI in addition to Campbell's 18. I thought it was a really good basketball game, Jacobson said. I thought Drake played better than we did the first 10, 12, 14 minutes. I thought the guys did a heck of a job. We were up two at halftime. I thought that stretch, the last five, six minutes of the first half, our guys were terrific. And then came out at half, half, great to get that 10-point lead. We had a ton of good things happen for us. Up next, the Panthers remain on the road for a matchup with Bradley, whose record is 15-5 and 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 7-2 in the NBC, on Wednesday at 7 p.m., Broadcast coverage of the game will be provided by CBS Sports Network and the Panther Sports Radio Network on 93.5 FM, The Mix. In college women's basketball, Panthers hang 100 on Bradley in victory out of Peoria, Illinois. The Northern Iowa women's basketball team bounced back from a pair of consecutive losses with a 46-point, 105-59 win over Bradley on Saturday. The Panthers, whose record is 6-11 and 5-3 in the NBC, took control early on with an 8-2 scoring run in the first three minutes of action. Leading 12-7, Kayla Lobby and Maya 
McDermott hit back-to-back threes to kickstart a 10-0 scoring run to take a 22-7 lead with 4 minutes 3 seconds in the first quarter. UNI closed the first frame on a 12-0 run to lead 34-11 after 10 minutes of action. A 13-0 run behind threes from Grace Bofelli, Kaylin Morgan, and McDermott buoyed the Panthers in the second quarter as UNI outscored the Braves 26-19 in the second frame. UNI led 81-50 after a back-and-forth third quarter. The Panthers sealed the win with a 15-1 run over the first five minutes of action before cruising to the win. Buffelli led the Panthers with a game-high 24 points and 9 rebounds. Emerson Green, 16, Lobby, 15, and Rachel Aitola, 11, also scored in double figures for UNI. Waterloo West alum Haley Pook led the Braves, 5 whose record is 5-15 and 1-8 and and in the NBC, with 19 points on 8 of 12 shooting. Isis Fish also reached double figures with 13 points. Up next, the Panthers face Illinois, Chicago in Chicago on Wednesday, January 31st at 6 p.m. Broadcast coverage of the game will be available on ESPN Plus and the Panthers Sports Radio Network on 106.5 Corn Country. And in other college men's basketball, Iowa State topples number 7 Kansas. In Ames, Trey King had 21 points and 9 rebounds, and number 23 Iowa State knocked off number 7 Kansas 79-75 on Saturday. Iowa State, whose record is 16-4 and 5-2 and in the conference, improved to 13-0 and at home this season while enhancing its status as a Big 12 contender. Kishan Gilbert scored 16 points for the Cyclones, and reserve Curtis Jones had 15 points. Hunter Dickinson led Kansas, whose record is 16-4 and 4-3 in the conference, with 20 points and 15 rebounds. Kevin McCuller Jr. had 16 points on 5-for-18 shooting, and Johnny Furphy finished with 15. A three-pointer and a layup by Tamman Lipsy helped Iowa State seize control early in the second half, Jones's three-pointer increased the Cyclones' advantage to 55-43 with about 12 minutes left. And Iowa takes down Michigan out of Ann Arbor. Peyton Sanford scored 26 points and Tony Perkins added 24, leading Iowa to an 88-78 victory over Michigan on Saturday. Sanford scored 21 points in the second half. For the game, he made six of eight three-pointers and added six rebounds with three assists. Perkins made nine of 12 shots and added five assists. Owen Freeman added 15 points, 9 rebounds, and 3 block shots for Iowa, whose record is 12-8 and 4-5 and and in the Big Ten. Iowa took the lead with an 8-0 run early in the second half, and a three-pointer from Sanford gave the Hawkeyes a 67-60 lead with about 11 minutes to go. A three-pointer by Terrence Williams II got the Wolverines within 67-66 before Sanford scored 8 points to help Iowa rebuild a 9-point lead. Iowa's lead reached 13 when Freeman hit a pair from the line near the 4-minute mark, and the Hawkeyes led by double digits for the remainder of the game. The Wolverines shot 28% in the second half and missed 11 of their final 12 attempts. Williams led Michigan, whose record is 7-13 and 2-7, with 16 points. Olivier Nakomna, Doug McDaniel, and Namari Burnett scored 13 each. McDaniel had six rebounds and five assists. Nakua added six rebounds and five blocks. And Burnett had five assists. And college wrestling. Panthers respond, flatten Sooners. 
by Douglas Miles out of Norman, Oklahoma. For the Northern Iowa wrestling team, the results are in the response. One night after falling at number 5 Oklahoma State, the 22nd-ranked Panthers visited number 18 Oklahoma for what appeared to be an even matchup. The response and the result was anything but even. We responded well off last night, UNI coach Doug Schwab said after the Panthers routed the Sooners 30-12 in a Big 12 dual meet Saturday night at McCaslin Fieldhouse. That's what competitors do, and I think great teams do, right? You have to handle adversity really well, and you have got to be able to put back-to-back days together. It's the tight matches. We have got to find ways to win those. We have got to find a way to turn those in our favor because it goes to be a real lopsided duel in a hurry. The ones we're supposed to win, you win. We want to win some of the ones on paper you're not supposed to win. You would like to do that a little bit more, but good response for our team. You and I, whose record is 4-5 and five and 3-1 and one in the Big 12, won 6 of 10 matches overall and, were, and all were bonus point victories. At 133 pounds, you and I sophomore, Julian Farber won by major decision, while 7th-ranked Kale Happel earned a technical fall at 141. Redshirt freshman Ryder Downey ranked number 11 at 157 in the first NCAA coaches ranking released January 22nd, posted a 13-1 major decision over number 28-ranked Jared Hill. It was the second-ranked victory of the weekend for Downey, who won by decision Friday night against Oklahoma State's Teague Travis, who was ranked 15th by Flow Wrestling. Yesterday I didn't do a whole lot, Downey said. I guess I got one takedown. That worked. Today I turned him and got a couple of takedowns. Those worked. Oklahoma's record is 5-5 five and five and 2-4 and four in the conference, attempted to grab some momentum at 165 when 29th-ranked Cale Carlson edged UNI sophomore R.J. Weston with a 7-6 decision. With the UNI advantage trimmed to 13-9, it was up to the Panthers to respond. Once again, they did. Junior Jared Sima, ranked number 27 at 174 pounds, turned the direction of the duel definitely back in UNI's favor with a pin of number 25-ranked Tate Picklow in 4 minutes, 1 second. They had come back and won a match at 165 and kind of stole the momentum, Schwab said, and I think that pin was a huge turning tide of the match because it was maybe a coin flip match, it looked on paper. To get a pin like that, I think it just energized our whole bench, too. Those are good things. Guys have got to step up in those situations, and he certainly did. Oklahoma's second-ranked wrestler at 197 pounds, Stephen Buchanan, did not compete, which opened the door for former West Delaware prep Wyatt Volker to register a pin against the Sooners' Ryan Nichols. A night after winning a 1-2 versus two showdown with Oklahoma State's Dustin Plott, UNI redshirt junior Parker Kikison, ranked first at 184 pounds, had an easier time with Oklahoma's Carson Berryville with a 22-6 technical fall. I felt the need to respond Kekison said of Friday's match, Plot got in on my legs and he scored a couple of times. We talk about it all the time. How are you going to respond? In life, if something goes wrong, how are you going to get back up? And I feel like I responded pretty well. As the calendar flips to February, you and I will have more opportunities for positive responses. The Panthers host number 20 West Virginia on February 4th, then travel to Cal Baptist and number 4 Iowa State before closing the regular season with home duels against number 2 Missouri and number 21, Wisconsin. Great opportunities for our guys to solidify their spot in the rankings, Schwab said, and just to put themselves in the national tournament. 
We want to be battle-tested, and that's what we are building to that for February. I am seeing growth in these guys every single time out. Some guys that lost, they're not happy about it, but I know how they'll respond, and that's all that really matters. Details of high school merger plan emerge. Rationale funding for Waterloo plan outlined at third public meeting by Angela Sturm McLaughlin out of Waterloo. Approximately 50 people gathered in the Pointer Elementary School Library Saturday to ask questions about the proposed $165 million plan to merge Waterloo's three public high schools in a new building on the grounds of Central Middle School. Waterloo Community School Superintendent Jared Smith outlined the basic vision for the new facility. The combined high school would be one of the largest schools in the state with a projected enrollment of 1,980 students. It would be built onto Central with a huge academic wing addition, either to the south or west of the current building. It would include a full-size gymnasium with four practice basketball courts and one competition court, and a raised indoor running track similar to the Cedar Valley Sportsplex. There would be a full-sized auditorium for plays and concerts in the fine arts wing, providing more room for band and orchestra practice. Using East High as an example, Smith stated, we are a 4A-sized high school, and we are using 1A or 2A-sized facilities for music. For this project, we are investing heavily in our students, but also in the fine arts and athletics. Multiple residents questioned how the district would fund the project using revenues from the 1% statewide school sales tax. Smith and Jeff Sommerfeld, Waterloo School's chief financial officer, said that sales tax will help pay for the merged high school the same way it paid for building or remodeling other schools throughout the district. We used SAVE, Secure and Advanced Division, for education funds to pay for turning Logan into George Washington Carver Academy, the updating of Hoover and Bunger Middle Schools, as well as the building of the Waterloo Current Career Center, and most recently the Central Middle School Remodel Project, Sommerfeld said. Our goal is to also fund the high school in the same manner. Amy Schmidt, recently named executive director for, of teaching for the district, explained the thinking behind grouping 8th and 9th graders together instead of the current middle school configuration of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Students in grades 8 and 9 would attend classes at the current East or West high school buildings instead of Hoover, Central, Carver, and Bunger middle schools as they do now. When you think about the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, that is a tough transition in their lives, she said. They are going through puberty and they have all these things they are going through. We think leaving fifth grade and going into a school with eighth graders is a huge transition for them. We've looked at putting the eighth and ninth graders together, and by doing that, we can start to prepare them for high school and the future while giving sixth and seventh the goals they need, Schmidt said. She also answered a question about how accessibility to the Waterloo Career Center, already co-located on the central campus, can change a student's perspective on learning by sharing a story about her own son. I have a kiddo that is a junior at West. I've been in this world for a while working with career development, and my son decided he wanted to take a class because he was blown away by the opportunity. We talk about facilities. I can tell you it's a big deal to have a kid walk into a school and be blown away and engaged in what they're going to do. They will be happier and succeed, Schmidt said. At the WCC, just in the last three years since the 2021-2022 school year, we've had 97% attendance rate. Center Director Amy Mishy said, in comparison to Expo East and West, where the attendance rate is anywhere from 68% to 84% at the most. A final town hall meeting will be held at 5 p.m. Thursday at Dr. Walter Cunningham School for Excellence. 
Find information about the proposed merger online at waterloo-schools.org slash bridging futures. And that does it for today's reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 30th. I've been your reader, Teresa Whitaker. You can access a reading of today's readings on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.